And our scripture reading is from Judges chapter 7, verses 1 to 22. Then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give them many nights into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore pro proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. Shall, and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Every one of you who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he set all the rest of Israel every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant. And you, you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah's servant to the outposts of the armed men, who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as a sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent. And struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittai toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. Good morning. Uh, this is a great chance for me to get to say thank you uh, to Christ Prez. We. RUF really is an arm of the church going to campus, and uh, in at least what's been the strangest uh, year in 12 years of campus ministry to me. Uh, student, uh, God's still at work, and students are still being reached uh, for Christ, uh, and they're equipped to serve the church, and Christ's presence is a backbone of that. Not only do y'all give and pray uh, and support, but uh, this building. Uh, I, we wouldn't have been out of RUF if y'all, if y'all hadn't let us meet here on Wednesday night, so... I joke with Les, thanks for building this building for us. That was a great $10 million campaign. Um, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to drop down in the middle of the book of Judges, like Ward read. If you ever read Judges, uh, it honestly would probably be rated R in the movies. Because uh, if you read through it, there's uh, just blood-curdling violence. Uh, there's abuse. There's uh, sexual immorality. It, it's kind of everywhere in Judges. And the reason for that is... Uh, Judges is showing you just how dark and messy and sinful our hearts really are. That, it, that all that stuff is in there. But amidst the kind of backdrop of all that pervasive stomach-turning sin, what Judges shows you is that there's even something more powerful than our sin. And it's the relentless grace of the Lord. That's what keeps showing up. And so what we see in Judges 7 that Ward read, it's that one of the keys for seeing and receiving just the amazing and powerful work of salvation that the Lord brings is actually embracing our weakness and actually embracing our inability, which I think sounds odd to most of us. So think about this, right? Um, I sometimes think it'd be uh, very frustrating uh, to be a medical doctor uh, in today's age where you've got like WebMD at your fingertips, you know, you can Google everything. Uh, so, you know, imagine this scenario that you kind of have these symptoms like fatigue and headache and stomach pain. And so, you know, you do what I do. You kind of Google it yourself and you self-diagnose yourself and, and you, you come to, you become convinced that you have Lyme's disease, right? So you make an appointment with Dr. Abraham over here, right? And you're, you go to see him, who's actually my doctor. I don't know if that's a HIPAA violation or not. And, uh, and I go to Sumner and I say, hey, I figured it out. I have Lyme's disease. So if you would just kind of write me, you know, this medicine, everything will work out. Well, like a good doctor, what if he doesn't just go with my diagnosis, run some tests, and he says, actually, you don't have Lyme's disease. Uh, you're allergic to chocolate. And you've got to quit eating chocolate. Okay, at that point I have a choice. And what if I walk away and I say, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I figured it out. And so I go home and I keep eating chocolate. And then I even start making medicine in my basement because I know what I have. Right? If I keep getting worse and worse, what's the problem? Like, who's to blame? Ultimately, it's me, right? It's the patient. Because it was my, my inability to admit my weakness my inability to admit that I really don't know, or my confidence in my own expertise that was the problem, that I could not trust the doctor. 
And see, what, what Ward read for us in Judges 7, this is the principle that's at work. That in order for the Lord to save Gideon and the Israelites, he has to break their confidence in themselves. He has to get Gideon and the Israelites in touch with their weakness so that the wisdom and the grace and the power of the Lord is what shines forth. And that's actually true of us in the way that he saves us from our enemies, sin and Satan. So that's all I want to do is quickly look at with you. It's all about weakness. That it seems so upside down, but the way that it happens is a weak salvation, a weak faith, and weak weapons. All right? Weak salvation, weak faith, weak weapons. And the reason it seems so upside down is it is upside down the way that the Lord saves us from sin and Satan. All right? So first, weak salvation, right? Verse 1 through 9. This is the setting. This is what happens in Judges all the time is uh, they start worshiping idols. They start worshiping uh, someone that's not the one true God. And in the Lord's loving discipline, he raises up another nation. This time it's the Midianites. And they, they conquer and they rule over Israel. And finally, the Israelites cry out to the Lord for salvation, and he raises up a man named Gideon, all right? And Gideon's going to be the person that leads Israel against the Midianites uh, to save them, to conquer them. And, that, and we drop down to verse 1 of our passage, and what's happening is Gideon and the Israelite army, they're encamped. And they're encamped very close uh, to, to the Midianite army. And at that point, right, you realize, okay, a battle is about to happen. And so naturally... What you and I would expect verse 2 to say, if you know that a battle's about to happen, is this. All right? Get every man that's capable of fighting. Get every person that, that can fight. Get them ready, because there's a, and as many as you can, because we're about to have a war. But verse 2 takes this kind of jolting turn, right? And the Lord says, you've got too many people in your army. That's not going to work. So anybody that's afraid, send them home. And so, uh, what was it, like 22,000 go home, right? And then he says, ah, Lord says, you still have too many people. So he does this kind of drinking water experiment. I wouldn't read too much in that. It's just his way of reducing it until it's down to 300 people. That's it. So the Lord orchestrates a reduction of 99% of Gideon's army down to 300 people. So by the end of chapter 8, if you go, look, the Midianite army had over 135,000 people. And God brings the Israelite army down to 300. Do you realize how crazy that is? That would be like taking the sanctuary, I don't know, that's like uh, three-fourths full, and saying we're going to go battle against all of Oxford when it's uh, an SEC football weekend. Like, you, no one does that. It's crazy. That's not what you do. So the question is, why does the Lord do that? Why reduce the army by 99% to go into battle? And what's crazy, we don't have to make up a reason. Verse 2 tells us, it's so that Israel will not boast over the Lord and say, my own hand saved me. God does that so that the Israelites in no way can take credit for their salvation. And so God is telling the Israelites that the reason for their salvation and rescue for their enemies is going to have nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with their wisdom, nothing to do with their morality, nothing to do with their strength, but everything to do with the Lord and his power and his love. So here's what we see uh, with weak salvation. This is how God brings salvation to everyone. Salvation is the Lord's doing. It's not mine. The way the Lord saves us from sin and ourselves comes from him, from his doing, from his power, from his love, from his commitment, 
from his grace, not from my doing, my efforts, my commitment. That's the message over and over. And because salvation is from the Lord and not of myself, then what that means is a lot of times the biggest hurdle in your life for seeing and experiencing salvation, it's actually not your failures. It's not like the big sins that we think of. The biggest hurdle, it's actually your strengths. It's the stuff that you're good at. Right? Think about the Gideon story. If you're familiar with it, back in chapter 7 when you raise up Gideon, he, he gets rid of all the idols. He, he crushes the Asherah poles and all this kind of things. And you're like, yes, perfect. Get, get rid of the bad stuff. Get rid, of right, get rid of my addictions, right? But the Lord isn't fit, finished. Now he says, Gideon, I don't need you to just get rid of the bad stuff. I need you to get rid of your resources. I need you to get rid of the one thing that you got going for you, which is like troops. Why? Because the biggest hurdle for Gideon and Israel is not their strengths. It's, their, it's not their weaknesses. It's their strength. And so the Lord says, get rid of it. He's stripping them of anything that they might put their confidence in. So a good friend of mine was telling me about an episode of uh, This American Life, where it was called Girl at the Workplace. And she was telling the story of how uh, she began uh, dating and falling in love with, with this guy at work. And she realized this guy that uh, she thought was pretty cute, uh, uh, you know, across the way in another cubicle. She started realizing that on certain days, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, their shifts actually lined up so that they could spend time with each other. She said on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, she always planned out her wardrobe, uh, right? And she said, she, there, there's this pair of black acid wash jeans tapered that she knew looked good on her. And so she always wore those on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so, you know, it, they end up kind of dating and their relationship progresses. And uh, one day they're at, their house, at her house on Saturday and she, she's doing kind of a spring clean and she's throwing stuff out. And the guy she's dating picks up the, those jeans and says, what about these? Aren't you going to get rid of them? And she goes, why would I get rid of those? He goes, because they're heinous. And all of a sudden, she realized that like the thing that she thought was the key to making this girl like him, you know, him like her, was the very thing that was repelling him. And that is like indicative of us. We think, well, it's my addictions, my, my failures, all that kind of stuff that's, that's keeping Jesus away. But what we never consider are that it's the things that we're good at that actually hinder our relationship with him. It's probably the fact that so many people like you. It's probably the fact that you're good and moral, that you're well-rounded and have good theology. All that stuff's good. But those are the things that tempt us to think we're better than other people. And that somehow we would never say this, right? But somehow like, oh, it was like easier for God to save me. But if what, what saves you is the object of your faith, if salvation is going to happen, then the object of your faith must be shifted from yourself to the Lord. And so the Lord has to strip us of the things that we put our confidence in. That's why sometimes one of the most gracious things that Jesus can do, it comes in the form of severe mercy. And it's hard and it's awful. But you begin to realize that maybe that illness that I have begins to puncture the strength of getting things done and being successful. Because I used to trust in that. Or when somebody at school kind of rejects you or hurts you, it begins to puncture your strength of being well-liked. Because that's what I hope in. Or your child rebelling and you can't control your child. It punctures the strength that you're the good family. 
and you're the good parent or when you lose your job and it's awful. It begins to puncture the strength of money. All these things that I'm tempted to kind of put my hope in and severe mercy, God begins to strip it away so that you have no cry but mercy and nowhere to run but Jesus. But there you will find him saying salvation is of the Lord. So the essence is this. You simply cannot be saved if you think you're a good person, if you think you're better than those. Because the heart and soul of Christianity, of salvation, is Jesus on a cross. Someone who dies in our place because we can't, we can't live the life we're supposed to live. So the first thing that we see is that salvation comes in and through weakness. And so that begins to take away our boasting. So it is, crazy, it is crazier for me to say I contributed to my salvation than for Gideon to say I did it. I beat the Midianites. So secondly, though, we see, we see weak faith, right? To, right? to Gideon's credit, for whatever, like he obeys, the army's reduced to 300 men. But look, look at Gideon's faith. It's there, but it's incredibly weak. And the Lord knows that. He says, look, you go down to the camp, you're going to win. But if you're afraid, then take your servant down there and go listen. And Gideon's afraid. And he goes down in verse 9 and, two, uh, verse nine and 10. And look how the Lord responds to Gideon's doubting, to his fear. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't push him away. He dives in. And Gideon goes down and he overhears uh, these Midianite soldiers talking about a dream that they had where a loaf of bread knocks over a tent. And the other soldier says, that's Gideon. That's the sword of him. God has given us into his hands. And when Gideon hears it, he's assured of the Lord's commitment. He's assured of the Lord's love, his promise, and he's strengthened and he worships. So here's the question, right? After God reveals the dream to Gideon, did anything about God change? No. Was God more committed and more, and more committed in his promises to save Gideon after the dream than before? No. The only person that changed was Gideon. God was just as committed before the dream as after. It's just he met Gideon's weak faith with more revelations of his love. But it wasn't Gideon's faith that made God save him. That was going to happen. The only thing that changed is Gideon's faith got stronger. So, um, gosh, probably about 20 years ago now, uh, when I was sitting in RUF under uh, Les, uh, a group of us decided to go skydiving for the first time. Uh, most of us didn't tell our parents. And uh, when, after, I don't know if you've ever done this, done this but you, you have to sign like 20 pages of waivers, which starts getting very unnerving, right? And then uh, if you go for the first time, you have to be uh, tandem to somebody who's done this, you know, a bunch of times. And so uh, as we're kind of going over how to roll out of the plane and all this kind of stuff, one of the instructors says, hey, look, here's the deal. You can sign this piece of paper that says, no matter what, I want to go. Because what we've experienced is a lot of times people say they want to go, but then when you get up, oh, you know, whatever, X thousand feet, they freak out and say, I don't want to do this anymore. But if you sign this and you say, I want to go no matter what, then no matter what you say or what you scream, we'll walk you out of that airport. And so one particular female who was with us said, knew herself enough to say, I'm going to sign this. So, you know, up we go. Uh, it's about 10 of us. And I'm semi-confident uh, that, you know, I'm kind of shaking as you get, as you get uh, higher and higher. And the door opens. And when the door opens, I think, I, you know, I get a little scared. 
but I don't share that in front of the females. You know, I start walking confidently towards the door, and I can hear the girl behind me who's starting to freak out. She's saying, uh uh-uh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'm going down. You know, and so I go out first. Well, as I talked to the people at the end, they said her screams get louder and louder, saying, I don't care what I signed. I don't want to do this. And all of a sudden, he just walks her to the door, and they jump out as she screams. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, all of us made it down the same. All of us, you know, were safe and had, I don't know if she had fun, but, uh, but, but we were fine. Because what mattered was not the strength of our faith. Her faith was, was wavering. What mattered was who you were attached to. And she was attached to somebody who had skydived, you know, over a thousand times. And see, this is the deal. If salvation is, is by your performance or how good you are, or even how good your faith is, then weakness in faith is scary. Because when you look at it, you'll kind of realize, I'm not sure it's always great. But if what saves you is the object of your faith, then all that matters is who you're attached to. And if you're attached to Jesus, man, then you're secure. You can bring weak faith. You can bring doubting faith. You can bring questions. And you're us, he covers that. But what we do is we begin to make faith a work. And we slowly shift our trust from Jesus to our own faith. And we start saying, like, we're, we're, are, are you really sincere? Were, were you really sincere when you played, prayed that uh, prayer? You know, uh, have you trusted him enough? And at that point, there's always going to be insecurity if the object of your faith is your own faith. And the key is to turn and for it to be in Jesus. And see, how kind God is, is as Gideon's doubting, he just reassures him of his love. And that's how all good relationships work, right? I've been married to Liza for 15 years. If we got into some argument and uh, I said, come on, Liza, you know I love you. I told you that 15 years ago, that one time. You would say, I don't think that's good. <laughs> because you, a real relationship, you continue to assure each other of your love. And this is what the Lord's doing. He knows that he struggles to believe, that we struggle to believe. He knows we struggle to believe that he's really for us and he really loves us. And so he says, come to me. If you need to be assured of his love for you, look in the right places. And the place to look is not within. It's not even at your circumstances. It's to go to his word and to see that his word reveals who God is and his love for you. That's what the Bible is about. I usually go to the Bible to kind of get direction for my life, which means I think it's about me. It will do that. But it's ultimately about God and who he is and how much he loves you. Look in the right place. So we see weak salvation, we see weak faith, um, but lastly, we see these weak weapons. Right, look what happens. Gideon gathers his army of 300 men, he divides them into thirds, they walk into the camp, they have torches hidden in jars in one hand, trumpets in the right. At the same time, they blow the trumpets, they break the the jars and they reveal the torches and they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then they attack. No, they don't even attack. They just stand there. And the Midianites start killing each other, and they flee away. And that's it. And this is so instructive. Because the Lord says for the Israelites to use lamps and jars, which is not whatever you—that you never take those things into a battle. Right? Those aren't your battle instruments. But he says that's what you're going to fight with. Because if they use weak weapons, 
then they'll have to conclude that I guess the Lord did this. I guess it's the Lord that brought salvation. And it's still the same for us. Look, the Lord calls us to use, yes, we're to fight in this world. We're to fight against spiritual forces of darkness. We're to fight against Satan in, in our own sin. Do you know the tools that Satan, I mean, that, do you know the tools that Jesus gives us? They look so weak. It's things like this ancient book that we're teaching from. It's prayer. It's sacrificial love for each other. It's showing up at like Sunday morning church with people that maybe you don't like. It's like bread and wine. It's stuff that makes you go, what? that doesn't even seem like it's doing anything. But that's the point. The great uh, Charles Spurgeon, the kind of famous Baptist evangelistic preacher, one Sunday morning, five college students uh, were spending a Sunday in London. They, they wanted to go hear him. And he actually uh, met them at the door and he said, uh, do you want me to show you around? Do you want me to show you uh, the heating plant of this church? They weren't really interested, but they felt like they couldn't say no to Spurgeon. So they said, sure. And he walks them down to the boiler room and he opens the door. And in the boiler room, there was 700 people bowed in prayer, praying for the spirit to show up during the worship service. And Spurgeon was saying this, if you want to see real power, if you want to see what's, what's really changing the world, it's not the eloquence of my preaching. It's not my great intellect. It's the prayer of unseen common people. I love that. Because this is, this is how we begin to end. Look, it is hard to trust the Lord. He says, trust me to save you. Trust me to take your sin, to take your shame. You don't have to do anything. I'll do it. And then he calls us to trust him for the rest of our life with the weapons that he's given us. And they just seem so weak. We usually say it with a note of resignation. Well, I guess, I guess all we can do is pray. Why do we say that? Because we're more convinced that like right political policy or the perfect conversation is going to change somebody. But it's going to be through weak weapons. Honestly, the reason I don't like all I can do is pray, because you know what that means. If all I do is pray and this person's life gets changed, I don't get to be the hero. That person didn't know I did that. But maybe that's the point. Because if my object of the trust is the Lord, that he's going to bring salvation, if it's Jesus who saves, I guess we pick up weak weapons like prayer and his word and sacrificial love. So I'll end with this. How, how can you have confidence that the posture of weakness is the way? That even these weapons who look so weak, God will really use to change the world. How will you be assured of the Lord's love to strengthen you, uh, even with weak faith? It's the point of the whole story. I mean, think about the dream again to, uh, that was communicated to Gideon. A loaf of bread knocks over a tent. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe if it had been a big boulder or something, that would make more sense. But a loaf of bread does not destroy people and a tent, Right? It's too small. It's too insignificant. But isn't that illustrative of the whole story? That salvation is going to come through weakness? Because if you think salvation through 300 people in Gideon is crazy, that's nothing. Centuries later, it's going to seem even more silly. Because it's crazy, it's crazy to think that our sin, our shame, the enemy itself, Satan, will be defeated by man hanging on a cross. That's nuts. A symbol of weakness, a symbol of shame. 
Loaves, loaves of bread don't knock over tents. And victories don't happen by, by a crucified person. Or do it? Do they? And at the cross of Jesus Christ, submission and weakness wins. At the cross of Jesus, my boasting in myself has to cease. How can I boast about my, myself if I say the, my only hope is a naked man dying on the cross for me? I had to have that. And at the cross of Jesus, there becomes an explosion of assurance for my faith. Because I know the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love that person has for me. So I boast in Jesus because there's no other explanation for the cross than that he really loves me. At the cross of Jesus, I can be assured of the weapons that he gives, of his wisdom, of, of his weapons are powerful. Because the world is changed forever by the most upside down weapon the world's ever seen, a man crucified, the God man. So I can continue to pray and forgive and to be weak. That's what I invite you to this morning, to be like the Israelites, to bring your doubts, to bring your fears, to bring your strengths and your weaknesses, bring your sin and bring it to the cross. And then like the Israelites, just stand there. Stand there in Jesus' finished salvation. It's strong. You can be weak. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for the story of Gideon, of just in crazy and upside down ways um, withering away his armies uh, giving him uh, torches and trumpets all these things uh, that don't seem to achieve victory but you bring salvation so that we can boast in the Lord so would you chip away at our trust in ourselves would you chip uh, chip away at our strengths and our self-righteousness and help us to uh, see and receive a crucified and risen Savior that loves to show grace, uh, that loves to show mercy. And let us sing about that this morning. In your son's name I pray. Amen.